Your friend calls you to ask you for some medical advice regarding Sharban, her 56-year-old father. She tells you that Sharban is short of breath when he walks upstairs and his legs are swollen. Not only that, but when he takes his socks off, he has deep indentation where the top of his sock was. Sherban has diabetes mellitus and congestive heart failure and was recently diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome secondary to diabetes. Your friend says Sherban has not been taking his medications regularly. What is responsible for Sherban's edema? And how will you explain this to your friend? Hi and welcome to Audio Breaks. I'm Alex Dennis and this is the break on Starling Forces. Let's get to it. After this episode, you'll be able to 1. Define the Starling forces and distinguish intracellular from extracellular fluid and intravascular from interstitial fluid. 2. Explain how each Starling force affects fluid flux across the capillary wall and how the filtration coefficient affects fluid movement. 3. Describe the Starling equation for fluid filtration and what it determines. And 4. Identify the conditions that may alter each of the four Starling forces and explain how the alterations affect fluid flux across the capillary wall. Part 1. What are Starling forces? Have you ever wondered why all the fluid in our bloodstream doesn't pour out into the tissues, swelling us up like balloons? The answer to what controls this dynamic balance is four competing forces that control the movement of fluid across the capillaries. Known as the Starling forces, they determine whether fluid moves in or out of the blood vessel. Depending on the balance of Starling forces, fluid either stays in the vessel, moves out of the vessel and supplies the tissues with nutrients and oxygen, or moves back into the vessel, picking up waste products like carbon dioxide. The Starling forces comprise two general types of filtration forces, hydrostatic pressure and oncotic pressure which is a fancy word for hydrostatic pressure caused by proteins. Both can come from either the capillary or the interstitium, so we'll be discussing a total of four forces. The capillary hydrostatic pressure and the capillary oncotic pressure, as well as the interstitial hydrostatic pressure and the interstitial oncotic pressure. Before we look more closely at the four starling forces, let's review the basic division of total body water. The first dichotomy is whether it exists as intracellular fluid, abbreviated ICF, or extracellular fluid, abbreviated ECF. Two-thirds of the water exists in the cells, and a third is outside of the cells. We don't further break down the space inside the cells, but the space outside the cells, the extracellular compartment, is further divided into the intravascular space and the interstitial space. It's fairly simple. The intravascular space is the space inside blood vessels and lymphatic vessels. It consists of plasma, which is the liquid part of the blood that includes water, electrolytes, dissolved proteins, and everything else in blood except the blood cells. And then the water that's not either in cells or in vessels is the interstitial space. This is the space between the cells and outside of the blood vessels. It contains the interstitial fluid or the fluid found in the spaces around the cells. It's important to understand that these compartments are closely linked, and fluid and solutes can pass between them. Fluid and solutes move back and forth between the capillaries and the interstitial space by moving across the capillary wall. 
Movement of fluid across the capillary walls is normally tightly controlled to ensure the right amount of fluid in the blood vessels and interstitial space. Sometimes this process breaks down, and the resulting increase in volume in any of these spaces can cause clinical symptoms. For example, edema or swelling is often caused by an increase in interstitial or lymphatic fluid. Let's pause here for our first question. What parts of the body are considered part of the extracellular compartment? The areas outside the cells, including the interstitial space surrounding the organ tissues, and all the fluid in blood vessels and lymphatic vessels are considered part of the extracellular compartment. Part 2. How do Starling forces control fluid movement? You may have noticed that we've mentioned both forces and pressures, and you may be wondering what the difference is. It's simple. Forces are fluids acting over a given area, and pressure is a measure of the perpendicular force acting on a given area. So pressure is really force over area. A force acting on a smaller area creates more pressure. Since the areas of capillaries stay at a small, relatively uniform diameter, we can use pressure and force interchangeably in this discussion while also acknowledging that they are different. We'll start with the starling forces within the capillary, i.e. those that are properties of the blood. The capillary hydrostatic pressure and oncotic pressure work in opposing directions across the capillary wall. Let's talk about what gives rise to hydrostatic pressure. Blood in the capillaries is pressurized by the pumping of the heart. This pressure is known as blood pressure. This pressure pushes blood forward, but also pushes it against the vessel wall and causes the vessels to expand. Because capillaries are permeable, when the hydrostatic pressure within vessel increases, fluid is forced out of capillaries and into the surrounding interstitial space. On the other hand, capillary oncotic pressure, also referred to as colloid osmotic pressure, opposes hydrostatic pressure. It's exerted by plasma proteins, primarily albumin, which attract water to the hydration shell of these hydrophilic proteins. Oncotic pressure occurs when two fluid compartments with different solute concentrations are separated by a semi-permeable membrane, here the capillary wall. What do we mean by semi-permeable? In this case, we mean impermeable to those solutes of concern, like plasma proteins such as albumin, but permeable to water, ions, and other small solutes. Because the capillaries are semi-permeable, the plasma will pull water toward it from the interstitial space into the capillary. This opposes the capillary hydrostatic force driving the fluid outward. So far, we've addressed only the pressures generated inside the capillary, but the same two forces are generated outside the capillary in the interstitium. These forces are much smaller than the capillary forces in most cases, but they act in the same way. Interstitial hydrostatic pressure pushes fluid out of the interstitium into the capillary, while interstitial oncotic pressure draws fluid out of the capillary and into the interstitium. Again, normally interstitial pressures are much lower than capillary pressures, so they are not given much consideration when assessing fluid movement in or out of the capillary. Did you get that last bit? Let's see with a question. Under normal conditions, what two starling forces generally dictate movement in and out of the capillary vessels? 
Those would be the capillary startling forces, or hydrostatic and oncotic pressures, since the interstitial forces are weak compared to the capillary ones. The interstitial pressures each work in the opposite direction to their counterparts in the capillary. Overall, the four forces result in a balance between inward and outward forces. Inward being forces that pull fluid into the capillaries, outward being forces that push fluid out of the capillaries. Based on what we discussed so far, what two forces would contribute to movement of fluid into the capillary? If you set capillary oncotic pressure as well as interstitial hydrostatic pressure, you would be correct. That leaves the hydrostatic pressure within the capillaries as well as the oncotic pressure within the interstitial fluid as the outward forces pushing fluid outside the capillaries. So think about this for a little bit. In physiological conditions, we want the net movement of water across the capillary beds to be close to zero, right? Because otherwise we'd constantly lose plasma to the interstitium. But we still want some exchange because we want the blood to give out the good stuff and pick up waste from the interstitium on its way back to the heart. How can this happen? Well, at the beginning of the capillary bed, the capillary hydrostatic pressure wins over the capillary oncotic pressure and fluid moves out of the blood into the interstitium. And by the end of the bed, so much fluid has moved out that now the oncotic pressure is stronger than the hydrostatic pressure and fluid moves back into the capillaries. Don't worry if this felt fast, we'll revisit this later. Let's see if that made sense though conceptually with an application question. Given that the intravascular and interstitial fluids are separated by the capillary barrier, if the protein content of the intravascular fluid is increased, water will move towards which fluid space? In this case, water would move towards the intravascular fluid space. Time to add a bit more to our story. Besides the four starling forces, two other factors also influence fluid movement. Unlike oncotic and hydrostatic pressures, the other two factors do not control the direction of movement. Instead, they control the volume of fluid that moves. These factors are not pressures, but rather properties of the proteins and the capillary wall. The capillary fluid permeability coefficient measures how leaky the capillary is for a given hydrostatic pressure. Higher values mean more leakiness. Imagine a garden hose. If we poke holes in that hose, increasing its leakiness or permeability, more water leaks out. Second, the reflection coefficient for protein measures how much of the protein that determines the oncotic pressure, mainly albumin, can leak through the wall. The reflection coefficient can range from 0 to 1. With some capillaries, like those of the kidney glomerulus, essentially no protein leaks through the membranes, so the coefficient is near 1. With other capillaries, like those in the liver sinusoid, albumin leaks easily through the membrane, so the coefficient is closer to 0. Both coefficients can change during disease or human development. For example, Cytokines or systemic infection or sepsis can increase capillary permeability, whereas the sclerosis of aging can reduce it. Part 3. What is the Starling equation for fluid filtration? 
We can combine these pressures and coefficients in the Starling equation, which determines the direction and amplitude of fluid movement. You know what that equation looks like at this point. So, we want the net hydrostatic pressure pushing fluid out of the capillary. That's the capillary hydrostatic pressure minus the interstitial hydrostatic pressure. Because the fluid movement variable has a direction, to that we subtract the oncotic pressure that wants to move fluid into the vessel. That's the capillary oncotic pressure minus the interstitial oncotic pressure. Now, what about the coefficients we just discussed? Well, the capillary fluid permeability coefficient impacts hydrostatic pressure, so the net hydrostatic pressure is multiplied by that. And reflection coefficient for protein has to do with protein, so you multiply the net oncotic pressure by that factor. Let's think about that again. The difference between the capillary hydrostatic pressure and the interstitial hydrostatic pressure is the net hydrostatic pressure between these compartments. A positive value means that a hydrostatic force is pushing fluid out of the vessels. It is multiplied by the capillary fluid permeability coefficient, which measures how easily fluids can move through the membrane. Meanwhile, the difference in oncotic pressures is the net oncotic pressure between the capillary and the interstitium. A positive value means an oncotic force is pulling fluid into the vessels. This is multiplied by the reflection coefficient for proteins. If that coefficient is near 1, proteins are not easily leaking out and the oncotic pressure is more effective. If that coefficient is near 0, the proteins can leak through the membrane and the oncotic pressure will not be so effective. And that's easy to remember because a coefficient of 0 will null the oncotic pressure part of the equation. Putting it all together, we calculate the difference between the hydrostatic pressures and the oncotic pressures to get the total net force on fluid. If this difference is positive, more fluid moves out of the capillaries and into the tissues, and this process is called filtration. If this difference is negative, more fluid moves from the tissues into the blood, and this process is called reabsorption. Let's see how that works in a capillary. Let's imagine the proximal or arterial side of a capillary, where the goal is to deliver nutrients and oxygen to cells. Assume the interstitial forces are small and cancel each other, and that the capillary hydrostatic pressure is plus 36, while the capillary oncotic pressure is plus 26. If you add all of these up, the net driving force, which is plus 10, favors the movement of fluid from the capillary to the interstitial space. This net direction of fluid movement, filtration, is what we'd want to see in capillaries that deliver oxygen and nutrients, as well as in the kidney, where the goal is to filter fluid out of the capillaries and into the nephron. In contrast, let's consider a more distal capillary, nearer to the venous side. Same oncotic pressure of plus 26, but now the capillary hydrostatic pressure is only plus 17. If you add all of these up, the net driving force, which is minus 9, favors the movement of fluid from the interstitial space to the capillary because the capillary oncotic pressure exceeds the capillary hydrostatic pressure. This is reabsorption and is how the body picks up waste from the cells.
But why did this happen? Earlier, the fluid left the capillary and entered the interstitium. The loss of fluid from the capillary caused the capillary hydrostatic pressure to fall to 17 millimeters of mercury. Note that under normal physiological conditions, the net driving force at the proximal end of the capillary has a net driving pressure of plus 10, which promotes filtration, while the net driving force at the distal end of the capillary has a net driving pressure of minus 9, which promotes reabsorption. Since more fluid is filtered than reabsorbed, some excess fluid is left in the interstitial space. This is why lymphatic vessels are needed. They pick up and drain the excess fluid in the interstitial space. They return the excess fluid through the lymphatic ducts back to the circulation, preventing abnormal fluid accumulation and edema. Part 4. What happens when the starling forces are disrupted? Alterations in any of the starling forces can lead to changes in the net movement of fluid. Normally, when extra fluid shifts in the interstitium, it's picked up by the lymphatic system. However, if the fluid movement is too great or if the lymphatic vessels are damaged, the interstitium will expand, causing visible swelling, called peripheral edema. In most cases, the lower extremities are more affected because gravity pulls fluid downward. This phenomenon causes pitting edema, whereby indentation occurs and remains after pressure is applied. Fun or maybe not so fun fact, hospitalized or bedbound patients may instead develop edema in their back or buttocks, which are their lowest points. There are several diseases that lead to edema, and the edema's location depends on the etiology. Congestive heart failure reduces the heart's ability to pump, so blood backs up into the venous system. If the left ventricle fails, blood backs up into the pulmonary circulation. The pulmonary capillary hydrostatic pressure rises, which causes pulmonary edema. Fluid leaks into the alveoli and causes shortness of breath. If the right ventricle fails, blood backs up into the systemic circulation and the net hydrostatic pressure rises and pushes fluid out of the vessels. This causes peripheral edema in the legs and feet. Let's link this back to the topic of our episode. How does congestive heart failure affect the starling forces? Congestive heart failure reduces the heart's ability to pump blood, causing blood to back up and hydrostatic pressure to rise. Let's consider how kidney disease can cause edema. The renal glomerulus, the filter of the kidney, normally does not allow albumin to pass through it. However, in some disease states, for example nephrotic syndrome, the glomerulus is damaged, allowing protein to pass through and be excreted into the urine. This causes a net protein loss from the blood and lowers the capillary oncotic pressure. The decrease in capillary oncotic pressure reduces the force that pulls fluid from the tissues into the vessels and fluid tends to build up in the interstitial space. As a result, nephrotic syndrome can also cause edema. And if you've been following our podcast, you'll know that we discussed a patient that had exactly this presentation. Interepisodic connections, I love it. And that's all I have today on Starling Forces. Let's see what you want to be taking away from this episode. What are the four starling forces that control movement of fluid into and out of the blood vessels from and into the interstitium, respectively? 
The startling forces are the capillary hydrostatic pressure, the capillary oncotic pressure, the interstitial hydrostatic pressure, and the interstitial oncotic pressure. Note that the interstitial forces are weak compared to the capillary forces. In what compartments does body water exist? Body water exists as either intracellular fluid or extracellular fluid. Extracellular fluid includes fluid in the blood vessels as well as in the interstitium. How does oncotic pressure of the blood contribute to blood flow? The oncotic pressure of blood pulls fluid into the capillaries. On the other hand, the oncotic pressure of the interstitium pulls fluid out of the capillaries. At the proximal end of the capillaries, in which direction does the net driving force push the fluid? Normally, the net driving force at the proximal end of the capillary is positive, which promotes filtration, whereas the net driving force at the distal end of the capillary is negative, which promotes reabsorption. And that's all I have today on the Starling forces. Let's take a look back at our patient story from the beginning of this episode. Think back now to your friend's 56-year-old father, Sherban. She tells you that Sherban easily gets short of breath and that his legs are swollen. Sherban has diabetes mellitus and congestive heart failure and was diagnosed recently with nephrotic syndrome secondary to diabetes. Your friend says Sherban has not been taking his medications regularly. How do you explain this to your friend? You explained that the cause of Sherban's edema is twofold. One, there's increased hydrostatic pressure from his congestive heart failure. And two, there's a decrease in oncotic pressure due to the protein loss in the urine because of the nephrotic syndrome. Sherban's heart doesn't pump well, so his blood vessels have high back pressure, which causes fluid to leak into his legs. This fluid cannot be pulled back into Sherban's blood vessels because the protein level in his blood has decreased. You stress to your friend the importance that Sherban take his medications. If he does, his symptoms will improve. You advise her to call his physician for prompt follow-up. And that is a wrap on Starling Forces. As with many topics, a fundamental conceptual understanding will allow you to infer the math and perform calculations anytime. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. Your feedback is always super helpful to us. You can also get the full RxBricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com. I will catch you on the next one and you take care.